So this time of year, uh, you, you get all kinds of quotes around Independence Day, things about freedom. And some of the ones that you'll probably hear, if you haven't already, are freedom is never free. Or others paid the price, so you wouldn't have to. And there's the, the famous Ronald Reagan quote that it says, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Now, all these quotes have to do with, with our nation, but they all have gospel echoes in them. Now, the question is, as we talk about the price of freedom, how it isn't free and others had to pay a price so that we could have freedom, those are great things to be reminded of with our nation this particular weekend especially. But what about the freedom that we have in Christ? How much so are we in danger of giving up that freedom? Now, the, the freedom that we have in Christ was being advocated for in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And it's not because a military power was coming into Colossae and looking to take over their land. But the freedom that they had from sin, the freedom that they had from man-made religion, the freedom that they had from God's wrath, the freedom that they get to enjoy God for all eternity was all being attacked. And the way it was being attacked was, again, not by some physical military power, but because a false, but some persuasive ideas were being advocated for in the church at Colossae. Some false but persuasive ideas about spirituality and about God. Those things were advancing in Colossae. And Paul's writing to them, and we see especially in this passage, Paul's writing to them, trying to help them understand that ultimate freedom comes in Christ. Ultimate freedom is found in Christ. Therefore, he wants them to submit their lives to Christ, not man-made regulations. So I'll say that again. Ultimate freedom is found in Christ. Therefore, submit your life to him, not man-made regulations. That's what Paul is getting at in these verses that we are looking at in Second, or excuse me, in Colossians two. Now, this letter, as I said, was written by Paul while he was a prisoner in Rome. He was in prison because he was proclaiming the gospel. He was proclaiming this freedom in Christ, and he's proclaiming that Christ is in fact Lord. And so the authorities and the rulers of that time did not like that, and so they placed him in prison. So he writes to this Colossian church saying, "Hey, if you're worried about some of the authorities and the rulers that are over, over you." Consider me. I'm in prison. And he's writing this letter to the church in Colossae. And at the same time, he's also writing a letter to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. But this church um, in Colossae is a young church. They're still growing into maturity. And he's trying to help them do that. It was founded by a man named Epaphras. Paul had never actually been to this church before, but he's heard good things. And he really wants to see them continue to grow in maturity to grow in their love for Christ, to grow in their freedom that they have in Christ and to hold fast to that. And what he recognizes is that there was this false teaching that was going on, this permeating throughout the Colossian church and was threatening the firmness of faith that they had that their freedom was in Christ. And this false teaching is known as the Colossian heresy. You could Google it, but just to give you a, uh, a nutshell version of what it is, is, is this idea of syncretism. 
that you can take all these other religious practices that are in, around during that time, all these other pagan practices, and you can syncretize them, you can blend them with Christianity. And when you do bring all these other ones in with Christianity, then you have a full picture of who God is. And Paul is telling him, no, that is not the case. And so they were being, you, you can see in verse 8, they were being um, encouraged to embrace some of the philosophies of men. They were encouraged, you can see in verses 11, 16, 17, to adhere to some of the Judaistic ceremonialism, some of the Jewish practices that were going on in their day. In verse 18, we see that they were encouraged to participate in angel worship. And then in verses 20 through 23, we see that they were encouraged to participate in asceticism, which is just a false form of humility to deny your body the things that it, it wants, to say that because I'm denying this, therefore I am more godly. Sometimes it's good to deny our body of things. However, these people were advocating for a harsh treatment of the body. And by doing that, they would say that you are now more godly. So Paul writes this letter to help the Colossians understand that you don't need all these other things, all these other practices, all these other ideas to understand who God is. He's writing to them, this is the theme of the whole book, so that they may know that the fullness and the sufficiency of Christ. They may know the fullness and sufficiency of Christ, that in him is the fullness of deity, the fullness of God. You don't need all these other practices over here to help you understand who God is. If you look at Christ, he's the fullness of God. And so therefore, you don't need all these other things. Don't submit yourself to these other things. And we'll unpack that as we go through the text. But if you would, um, as I said, we are in Colossians. So if you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn there. You'll see it in the New Testament. See Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And then we're going to be in chapter 2. Let's look for the big number 2. And we're going to start in verse 6. Big number 2, little number 6. And if you're using one of the Blue Provided Bibles, the, that's going to be on page 984. Page 984. As we look at this text, I, I, think, I think Paul's broken his argument down into two primary sections. So in verses 6 through 15, I think we see freedom in Christ. If you're looking at your bulletin, that's the first point. Freedom in Christ in Christ. And then he unpacks some of the implications of that in verses 16 through 23 where we see freedom from regulations. So freedom in Christ and freedom from regulations. And this is just typical Pauline writing style where he kind of gives you the premise and then he gives you the implications afterward. He does this even in the book of Colossians where the first two chapters are really kind of the theological basis, and the last two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, are some of the practical outworkings. And we see a, a microscopic version of that here just in these verses, where the first part we see freedom in Christ, and some of the implications after that are freedom from regulations. So let's read this text, and then we will begin to dive in. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul writes this to them. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled 
in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, being puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot in this text. Help us to see Christ clearly in it and help us to see how we should live in light of it. Thank you for giving it to us. Help us to walk in freedom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So your, the, the first point in your bulletin, freedom in Christ. We're looking at those verses 6 through 15. Now, this passage, verses 6 through 15, Douglas Moo, who wrote a commentary on this entire book, he said that this section is the heart of Colossians. So verses 6 through 15, this section is the heart of Colossians. In those first couple verses, we see that he, Paul wants them to walk in Christ. He wants the Colossian to be rooted and to be built up in Christ. He's reminding them of the teachings that Epaphras, who founded the church, gave them. Just be rooted in those. Be built up in those teachings. Let that be your foundation, not these other things. Don't, don't forsake the foundation that was given to you by Epaphras. He's a good teacher. Be rooted in those. And build yourself up around those. He's using tree and building imagery. He's saying that that teaching that Epaphras gave you was faithful teaching of Christ. And Christ must be the root and the foundation of everything we believe and everything that we do. And so the question is, what does that look like? What does it look like to walk in Christ? Well, Paul offers us I believe at least three things in these verses, 6 through 15. So in verses 8 through 10, he says that to walk in Christ is to not be taken captive by false ideas or philosophy and empty deceit, as he says. Now we'll get to uh, numbers 2 and 3, but let's start off with that one. Don't be taken captive by false ideas, by philosophy and empty deceit. Look at verse 8. The first part of it says, See to it that no one takes you captive 
by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, a commentary I was reading helped unpack that a little bit. And uh, they pointed out that the word translated takes captive was regularly used of taking captives in war and leading them away as slaves. And it depicts the false teachers as people stealers wishing to entrap the Colossians and drag them away into spiritual enslavement. John Calvin says that the word philosophy there is nothing else than a persuasive speech. Elegant and plausible arguments. So in the Colossian church, there were these persuasive arguments that were going on about spirituality and how you can know God and how you can have the fullness of knowledge in God. And Paul says, don't be taken captive by that. Those who are advocating those things, they want to take you, they want, they want to have you as a slave to those ideas. When in reality, if you're a Christian, you are called to be a slave to Christ, not to these other things. These things that are according to human tradition, whether that's Jewish practices or man-made religion or works-based salvation. Or, if you continue to look at verse 8, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, what in the world does elemental spirits of the world mean? Well, commentators and, and theologians on this will say that it, it, mean, it likely means, in this context, at least or one of two things. So the first one is, when it says elemental spirits, it could be pertaining to the elemental or basic religious teachings of Jews and Gentiles. So for those of you who are familiar with Sherlock Holmes, you know that one of his favorite phrases to his assistant is, Elementary, my dear Watson. That's elementary. He's saying it's basic. And so when Paul says, don't be taken captive according to the elemental spirits of the world, the basic religious teachings, the basic ideas are so simple. Don't be taken captive, captive by those. Or the second option is when, it says, when they say elemental, they're referring not to basic, but to earthy things like water, fire, wind. And, um, and what they believed during that time was that some of the spirits of the day were derived from some of those elemental um, roots, whether it's earth, wind, fire, water. And so what, what Paul is saying, if, you, if that's the case, is don't be taken captive by these false spirits that are trying to, to push these false ideas where you are. So whether it's elementary in terms of basic, whether it's elementary in, or elemental in terms of these false spirits, both are good options. I'm not going to tell you which one is exactly the right, the right one. Both fit. But either way, here's what Paul is getting at. Neither one of those options are according to Christ. Neither one of them are according to Christ. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, verse 9, friends, is immensely important for us to understand. Verse 9 is immensely the whole fullness of deity. So not 33% of God, not 50% of God, not even 99% of God. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ is fully God. But notice that that fullness dwells bodily in a real fleshy body. And so what we see in Jesus Christ is that he is fully God and fully man, which 
is necessary for salvation because when he was on the cross paying for the sin of all those who would call on him for salvation, he was able to perfectly represent God because he was fully God. And he was able to perfectly represent man because he was fully man. Jesus Christ is the only perfect representation. He wasn't just a man that lived a good life that took the sins of the world. He was God in the flesh. And if he was not God in the flesh, the wrath of God that was poured out onto him would have destroyed him. But because he was God in the flesh, he could take the wrath of God. And then on the third day, he could rise victoriously over it. No one else could have done such a thing. And if Christ is the fullness of deity, then the other ideas and religious practices that were being promoted in that day and that are being promoted in our day cannot add a single thing to our understanding of God. Follow me. If Christ is the fullness of deity, then if we want to fully understand who God is, all we need to do is look at Christ. If we add these other things in it, then we actually undermine the fullness of Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you have been filled. You've been made complete. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him. So Paul intentionally uses this fullness and this filled language to combat some of the teaching that was going on in that day. False teachers saying, hey, if you want full knowledge, if you want to be filled with the knowledge of who God is, then add these other things in. Syncretize them with your understanding of Christ. And Paul says, no, if you want to be filled, if you want to have a full understanding of who God is, then just keep looking at Christ. If you are depending on Christ for salvation, then you lack nothing. You do not need to add anything to make yourself more acceptable to God. He has provided all that you need in his son. And if you have not called on Christ to be your salvation, I would encourage you, do that today. He offers his salvation freely. All who would repent, confess their sin to God, and embrace Jesus as king, and the only one who can save them from their sin, they will be saved. If you haven't done that today, I'd encourage you to do so. And then in verse 10, he says, He is the head of all rule and authority saying that he's above all human tradition. Remember, we were just talking about human traditions that were being pushed and these other false practices. And then asceticism and elemental spirits of the world. And so he's saying that he is above all human tradition. He's above these elemental spirits of the world. He's above the false teachers. If you want to know God, don't look at these false teachers. Don't look at the elemental spirits. Don't look at human tradition. Look at Christ. He's above those things. One commentary put it this way said the Colossians have everything they need in Jesus Christ. Since they are forgiven of their sins by virtue of the cross of Christ and are already living a new life in him, they should not turn to anything or anyone else to, quote, complete their spiritual well-being. So if you want to know God fully, friends, look at Jesus Christ. After telling them not to be taken captive by false ideas, remember Paul's helping them understand what does it look like to walk in Christ. He said, one, don't be taken captive by false ideas. The second thing that he says is remember your conversion. Remember your conversion. Look at verse 11. In him also, so he has that also there, so he's moving on to a second point here. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. 
Now, we need to have some background understanding to know what Paul is talking about. So, Jewish law required that male infants on the eighth day would be circumcised. Now, Jesus fulfilled this requirement. We see this in Luke 2, where we read that at the end of eight days, when he, Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus. And so, in the Old Covenant, members received circumcision. And this was outward. However, Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant, and he enacted a new covenant. And in this new covenant, members receive a circumcision made without hands. So in the Old Covenant, they received circumcision made with hands. In the New Covenant, circumcision made without hands. That was circumcision of the heart. It's a way to say that the Lord has given you a new heart. He's given you faith. He's given you eyes to see and ears to hear. He's circumcised your heart to change it so that you can understand who he is. The question is, faith in what? Well, it's faith in Christ, not our own works. Look at the second half of verse 11. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We're no longer depending on our flesh. We're no longer depending on what our bodies can do or what's been done to our bodies to know that we're within God's covenant people. We are now entrusting ourselves entirely to Christ and what he has done. The fact that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. They're trusting that. They're trusting that his payment on the cross was sufficient to pay for all their sin and all their rebellion. Trusting that his death was in their place. And trusting that his resurrection was their future. And if you are in Christ, then that's your future too. All who believe that were then publicly baptized. So look at verse 12. Having been buried with him, so Paul's reminding them, hey, you who received the circumcision of the heart, the circumcision made without hands, you also, verse 12, have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so just as God's old covenant people, Israel, were outwardly identified through circumcision, God's new covenant people are outwardly identified through baptism. He says, you who have received that circumcision of the heart, all of you were baptized. But here's the thing. Notice Paul's logic in it. We need to make sure that we don't get these mixed up. The circumcision of Christ, that phrase there, we see in verse 11. So it's a way of saying, again, it's a fancy, colorful way of saying faith. So the circumcision of Christ, faith in Christ, is in verse 11. That comes before the baptism that he mentions in verse 12, faith precedes baptism, which, friends, is why we don't baptize infants. We love our infants, but we don't baptize them because they have not made a profession of faith. We say we need to have an understanding of faith, of repentance, and trusting in Christ, and then once you show evidence of that, we want to give you the sign. And so we love our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. We love our pedo baptists brothers and sisters, but we think they get this one wrong. And if you come from that background, you wonder why we aren't baptizing babies. Friends, that's why. And if you want to talk about that more, we'd, we'd love to do that. It's a very interesting topic. But Christian, if you are in the room, and you have professed Christ, and you have not yet been baptized, then I would encourage you, get baptized. Identify yourself with God's covenant people. I would love to talk with you about that. Find me after service. Find somebody else. Talk with them about what it means 
to be baptized. We would rejoice with you in doing that. But then Paul says that they'll be rooted and built up in Christ by one, embracing the truth, by not being led astray by false ideas, by two, remembering their conversion, and then three, by remembering Christ's work. So look at verse 13. And you, so again, he says and, so he's now shifting again. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, so don't forget, friends, we were, we were dead in our sin. We were depending on our flesh for salvation. But God did something about it. So you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He nailed our sin to the cross. And the way that we know that is by looking at Christ, who, though he was without sin, he became sin. And he paid for the sin of all those who call on his name. And if you've called on Christ, then your sin, past, present, and future, was nailed to the cross. It's been paid for. So even though we were spiritually dead with nothing to offer God, he kindly chose to make us alive in Christ. Our sins and our trespasses against God amounted to a debt that we simply could not pay, even if we had all eternity to pay for it. We would not be able to do it. And for God, to remain just, that debt that we owed needed to be paid for. Otherwise, he would be unjust. And so he did something. He sent his son. He satisfies his own justice by sending the son into humanity to live a sinless life, one that does not accrue any debt. He died a sinner's death on the cross, and he paid the debt of all his people. And on the third day, he rose victoriously. And by his resurrection, look at verse 15. By his resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so now those who, who put Jesus to death, the rulers and authorities that did that, they were put to open shame by his resurrection. They thought they had been victorious over Christ, that they had had the last say. But Christ had the final say when he rose on the third day and then ascended later on. The grave couldn't hold him. The power of the rulers and authorities, they could not contain him. God triumphed over them, and he's securing the same victory, friends, for all who call on him. So if you are in Christ, you will have that same victory over death. For everyone who calls on Christ as King and Savior. And so, friends, freedom is found by walking in Christ. We walk in Christ by not being taken captive by false ideas, by remembering our conversion and baptism, and by remembering the gospel. And so, Christian, perhaps... Even at lunch today, you could ask the question, what false ideas, what persuasive arguments are going around in our culture today? And then a follow-up question to that is, which one of those false ideas are the most tempting to believe? Which ones are going around today, and which ones, for me, are some of the most tempting to believe? 
Another question is, how can I be more intentional about remembering the gospel? Also, that's one of the ways that we walk in Christ is by remembering what he has done. So what's one thing I can do to help my friends, to help my family also remember the gospel? So how can I be intentional about that? And then what's one, one thing, just one thing I can do to help those around me be more intentional in remembering the gospel? And so freedom is found by walking in Christ. But freedom in Christ leads to freedom from regulations. This is the second point there in your bulletin. So therefore, in the light of this freedom that we have in Christ, we read in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So the false teachers in Colossae were arguing for these Jewish observances. They were saying that you need to add these in for spiritual growth. And that that led to at least two concerns for the Colossians. Because remember, the Colossians are Gentiles. And so they're not used to these Jewish practices. So it led to at least two concerns for them. The first one is on diet. They're not used to the dietary restrictions that the Jews had based off of the Old Covenant law. The second one was with regard to days. And so the Colossians as Gentiles, they, they didn't recognize Jewish festivals or new moon feasts that happened on the first of every month or Sabbaths. So the Jews would, would find their rest on the seventh day. Whereas Christians in the New Covenant find their rest on the first day of the week because that was the day that Christ rose from the grave. And so we gather on the first day of the week rather than the seventh because that's the day that Christ rose victoriously and that's what we're coming to remember. They were arguing, these false teachers, that Jesus Christ plus Jewish practices equaled spiritual fulfillment. Or fulfillment. And here's the thing. We don't need those practices to fully know God. Why? Because we read earlier in verse 9 that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. And so as we look at verse 17, we see that these Jewish practices are a shadow of, a thing, of the thing to come. But the substance is Christ. So we see food and dietary laws. We see these feasts going on. We see this Sabbath, this rest. Jesus Christ is our true bread. He is the bread of life. These, these feasts pointed to a greater feast. Jesus Christ is our true drink, the fount of living water. His blood shed for us. And Jesus Christ is the true Sabbath, where we find our true rest. It's in him. All of these things were just a shadow of the thing to come. And so when Jesus Christ comes, Paul's saying, you have the thing. Stop looking at the shadow. And so we have, we have a large tree in our front yard at our house. And uh, in early spring and in late fall, when all the leaves are off of it, if you walk outside, you can see that each branch has its own shadow. But here's the thing. Each of those shadows for each of those branches point back to the one tree. And so Paul is telling these Colossians, stop looking at these individual things that are meant to point you to the main thing. Focus on the main thing. He's the fulfillment. He is the substance of those things. He says, let no one disqualify you. So in addition to these Jewish practices, there were other pagan practices as well. We see them here in, in verses 18 and 19. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. And so in addition to these Jewish practices, there were these other pagan 
practices that were being taught by false teachers. And they were saying, hey, take the Jewish practices, yes, add them to Christ, but also take these pagan practices, yes, and add them to Christ too, and then you get the fullness. And Paul has addressed the Jewish practices. He said, hey, those are the substance. Those are, those are shadows of the substance. And now he's addressing the pagan practices. And he says this asceticism, this, humili- this false humility, this worship of angels, these things are not going to give you a right understanding of God. In fact, the scriptures strictly prohibit the worship of angels if you read in Revelation 22. And then, like, like most heretics, these false teachers said they had visions. Right? I know that you guys understand who Christ is, but God's given me a vision. And so you need to understand what this vision was so that you can have a fullness of under, understanding. And so rather than holding fast to Christ, rather than holding fast to the word, they were holding fast to their visions and to their feelings. And friends, we're tempted, even today. Maybe it's not a vision, but maybe it's a feeling. Or maybe it's an inclination. Maybe it's a thought. We're tempted to hold fast to those things rather than what God's word says. And if we want to know the fullness of who God is, if we want to grow in maturity, if we want to grow in sanctification, if we want to look more like Christ, then we need to hold fast to Christ. Not our feelings and not our inclinations and not our visions if we claim to have visions or dreams. Rather than holding fast to Christ, they were holding fast to those things. But here's the thing, holding fast to Christ alone is how the Colossian church is nourished and knit together and grows in maturity by holding fast to Christ. And friends, holding fast to Christ is the way that citizens' church is going to grow in maturity, is going to grow in sanctification, is going to be nourished and knit together. Not holding fast to our preferences, not holding fast to our style of worship, not holding fast to logo design or uh, social media presence, anything like that, but holding fast to Christ. It's the same way that Proclamation Church is going to be nourished and knit together and grow in sanctification and Gethsemane Baptist Church and Linworth Baptist Church and Grace Fellowship Church and Providence Church and any other true church of Jesus Christ. And so we want to pray for those churches to hold fast to Christ. Yes, pray for our church, please. Please pray for our church. We need it. We always need it. But don't just pray for our church. Pray for other churches. We're on the same team. Their health is good for us. Holding fast to anything but Christ harms you and it harms those that God has placed around you. So we want to help each other in this. We want to pray for others. We want to pray with others. Study God's word together. That's why we have community groups. And if you're not able to make a community group, then be intentional of trying to get together with other guys so that you can, other guys and gals, so that you can study God's word together and pray together and meet together, cry together, rejoice together. Do these things with one another. But let no one discount your faith simply because you don't submit to extra biblical practices that are promoted by some. That's what Paul is trying to help the Colossians understand. Hold fast to Christ. In fact, embracing those false ideas actually undermines the sufficiency of Christ and would disqualify you from running the race of faith. When Paul's writing to the Corinthians in in 1 Corinthians, which we just recently went through, but in chapter 9, verse 24, he says to them, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? 
So run that you may obtain it. And he's saying here that if you embrace these other practices that, that undermine the sufficiency of Christ, then you will be disqualified from this. You will not receive the prize because you will have adopted another gospel, Jesus plus fill in the blank. And that's not the true gospel, friends. Jesus Christ is sufficient. And then in verse 20, we see that Paul points out the inconsistency of submitting to these regulations. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So he's saying it's inconsistent to claim Christ as sufficient and then submit to these regulations because by submitting to them, you're saying that Christ is not sufficient. So if you're claiming Christ is sufficient, then friends, live like it. Don't submit yourself to these other regulations, to these other practices for your assurance. To do that is equivalent to saying that Christ is not sufficient. Practices such as do not handle. So we see in verse 21, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. So in our fallen state, friends, even, even after our conversion, in our fallen state, we are so tempted to lose sight of the gospel. We're, we're just prone to do that, to take our gaze off of Christ and then put it onto ourselves. And here's the thing. When we take our gaze off of Christ and we put it onto ourselves, a sense of panic begins to set in because we realize just how short we fall. And when we keep our gaze on ourselves, in order to, to assuage that sense of panic that we have, we begin to add in other things to make us feel good about our salvation. Paul says, don't do that. He says, keep your eyes on Christ. It's in those moments when we begin to feel that sense of panic, we begin to try to add other things in to make ourselves feel better about our shortcomings. It's in those moments that we need to be reminded from Ephesians 2 that it's by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our 